Hey everybody, welcome to Permission to Be Podcast Season 3. It is so, I'm so excited. Uh, <laughs> for the first time in a very long time, we have all the co-hosts here and you get the joy and the treat of listening to myself and Becca and David talk about a few things. What's up, y'all? What's up? Hey, hey. <laughs> Some might even call us the trifecta of co-hosts. Oh, what? What? Yeah, just no maybe. <laughs> the trifecta. Which, and and just to give you all a bit of behind-the-scenes perspective, um, we're always in conversation about the direction of the podcast and how to better integrate things and so we'll give you some updates on that and then um, maybe talk a little bit about uh, how we're currently being in regard in relationship to the space and time that we find ourselves in um, and get ready to launch our next two episodes sneak peek if you know Maisha Hill from Check Your Privilege, and then my dear friend Vicky Fanaby. Uh, we had some excellent conversations with them. So, hello, and welcome to Permission to Be. Let's hit them with the remix. Oh, well, y'all got to change yes. that. Yes. Becca, like, go to town on some questions. Yeah. Like, the elevator pitch I've got for it is how to live a good life while your whole life falls apart. Okay. Out of, uh, the, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, and I think out of the overflow of the spirit, the body does. Mike made it very clear that he did not want to get any of these questions beforehand. So he is getting this question live, raw, for the very first time. Why, why is that the best that God could offer you? This is um yeah. and i feel like art is the expression of the heart where uh words fail yeah. oh my goodness i have tears oh y'all are killing it I'm this is permission to be uh actually my 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 literary agent when we were talking about what book might i write he was like i mean a black man with hope is an interesting book (laughs) (laughs) oh shit (laughs) what's up y'all how's how how y'all feeling well it didn't feel as relieved as i thought i would feel after inauguration day i I feel better because it happened and nothing stopped it and nobody died that day, but I don't feel as relieved as I honestly expected to feel like just the energy in my body, just to feel kind of more of a release. And I know that happened for some people, but for me, it didn't. So that's where I'm at. We'll come back to that. I want to. I want to hear more about that. What about you, David? I'm good. Um, tired for personal reasons, but you know, more broadly, pretty solid. I uh, growing up, I would get kind of post-holiday kind of winter blues pretty frequently. But as an adult, and I still very much love like the Christmas season and you know, kind of the broader holiday season. Um, 
at least for those who celebrate uh, in the fall and, and early winter. But wait, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait. You you just love it, or you like love it? I love it. I love it a lot. <laughs> like when, when, is, when, when is it okay to start celebrating Christmas for you, and when is it okay for till you let it go? I mean, how how much detail are you asking for? Well, right now, just a starting and ending date. I think that'll give our listeners a little glimpse into your love. I would say holiday. that the holiday season, which I do not limit to Christmas, uh, <laughs> begins on October 31st and ends on January 6th. See, I feel that's normal, though. I would I start the holiday season to include all the events of the seasons changing to fall, like all the events of October, like the pumpkin craze of white women. (laughs) (laughs) I'm laughing, but I'm one. (laughs) Like, because, you know, as y'all are having y'all's pumpkin craze, we're we're preparing. I don't like the pumpkin latte, though. I will say that I don't like, but I like it all the rest of the stuff. Yeah, I should be more specific. I only mean the pumpkin spice latte craze, but like all other things pumpkin, I kind of enjoy. So pie season. Yeah. Well, so, but, so what we're also, uh, context clue is i should have maybe been more specific in my answer david when do you start playing christmas music well that sort of depends on how you define christmas music (laughs) in your mind whatever (laughs) you define christmas music as i'm laughing because i can see david's face as he said that and he like snickered (laughs) i mean I typically play what I would call Christmas adjacent music um, <laughs> from October 31st up through the pre-Christmas feast, mm-hmm. uh, colloquial known as, thing, uh, as Thanksgiving, but I don't call it that. Um, okay, define Christmas adjacent. We're going to have to define these things for people. So what is the Christmas adjacent <laughs> song? like? <laughs> you know, stuff that sounds wintry. <laughs> Does it have to have bells in it? (laughs) No, I mean, like bands that you listen to and you want to feel dark and twisty like the winter season. (laughs) You know, it doesn't have to just be like, 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 like bands have, I think most people feel this way, that certain bands are winter bands or summer bands or at the very, or some bands have winter albums and summer albums and there's a different energy um, with them. And so you, you start playing your... You start playing your winter shit between, <laughs> between Halloween and Anti-Capitalism Appreciation Day. And, <laughs> and then you start playing like actual Christmas songs between said day and January 6th um, during, you know, so, you know, okay. Let's just do this. Okay, so October 31st through the pre-Christmas feast is mm-hmm. pre-Christmas. Okay. Um, so during this time, you watch pre-Christmas type movies. So that was, um, you know, Harry Potter pre-J.K. Rowling being a turf. Um, oh, was, it's awful. Oh, that was, I was like, thank you for taking away part of my 
fucking childhood. <laughs> right. So, but but you still have that is true. You still have all the Lord of the Rings stuff. Um, you know, you know, thing things where there's like snow and beards and you know and things like that. And then um, and then and then you have your pre-Christmas feast. And then you have anti-capitalism appreciation day. Um, what most people think of as Black Friday. And then you're into what I call Christmas Eve, which is the day after that through December 24th. That's when you break out, you know... So it's like 30 days of Christmas, almost. 30 days of Christmas Eve. Eve, okay. okay. And then 12 days of Christmas. It's the, okay. one, it's the one time in the year I actually give a shit about the church calendar. I am... <laughs> I am <laughs> I am as low, 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 low church as it gets, you know, like, I get that some Protestants celebrate, you know, you know, honor the church calendar, but whatever, I do it purely on a case-by-case when it suits me, uh, suits me basis, but it always suits me between December 25th and January 6th. That's, that's coming from the pastor of the co-host, y'all, just FYI, so. So So you know it's official. (laughs) <laughs> all right okay, and, okay. And, and please know that i i am laughing but i'm not making fun david literally when we met five years ago i learned so much about all of these different seasons and different like seriously i had no such conviction there you go. Perfect conviction. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just gonna let that sit right there. <laughs> We're gonna move into the section of what we call New Year podcast business and explain to you what the is going on. <laughs> did you, did you just bleep yourself? I yeah, I've been bleeping myself because I was like, how many f bombs do we actually want? That like sometimes I just enjoy cursing, so sometimes it's just mm-hmm. not unnecessary. But then if I find it actually necessary for the sentence or for the concept, I'm not gonna bleep it out. Sorry. But that's just a today, because that's how I'm being today, I suppose. So but yeah. I'm fine, by the way. Good. All the white people talk about themselves. <laughs> Here I go, taking care of white people again. <laughs> again. Again. Just, Our, just kidding. They, they, they actually... Oh, but, but it's true, though, because we didn't ask you. So let's own that reality that... But also, I I, I've kind of put myself in a facilitator host starting out of this podcast, though. And then I oh, moved us along. He's so. Tommy Allgood. Yeah. He's all good all good even all when good. i'm bad i'm all good all good it's like a, <laughs> it's a different type i realized <laughs> i realized recently that i say no worries a lot and that's like the white version of akuna matata <laughs> it means no worries for the rest of your day <laughs> Um, still a favorite song of mine, even in my 30 years on this earth. So, I mean, it's up there with, so if you're thinking and you know, no one, but you guys are going to be able to see what my hand motions during this, but you got goofy movie. He's reaching up in the sky, y'all coming down. 
Tarzan. Okay. We're still above head. Coming down some more. Hercules. These are, just, sa- these are just soundtracks. Yeah. yeah. Hercules. Oh, just soundtracks. Just okay, soundtracks. Okay. Just soundtracks. It's a Tarzan. goofy movie. Hercules. Yeah, so, so, I mean, let's think about this. And it's a goofy movie. Hand all the way up. Yeah. You got Eye to Eye, After Today. You know, these are... I would listen to these songs, like, out of context. Um, I, and in fact, I am such a big fan of the Goofy Movie soundtrack that I have somehow stumbled upon Goofy Movie soundtrack TikTok. And my algorithm feeds me, feeds me TikTok videos <laughs> to the soundtrack of Goofy Movie. Mostly Eye to Eye, which is the most iconic song. But, but... Note to self, go find Goofy Movie TikTok. So, so then you come down and you got you got what what Phil Collins gifted humanity. For Don't the stop your crying. Yeah, oh my gosh! Like, like <laughs> Disney, Disney for whatever reason, some inspired you know like some inspired it's problematic like, as Disney is. <laughs> yeah. Oh no, they're awful. But sometimes you know, <laughs> you know like a, a broken clock is still right twice a day. Like. Like some, <laughs> so some tertiary executive was like, we should get Phil Collins to do the soundtrack for what was going to be like a C-level, C-tier Disney movie. And it still was, but man, that soundtrack is oh, yeah. is incredible. And then Hercules, which often gets forgotten amongst, you know, like the classic, like it was kind of during the time where like you'd already gotten past what is considered... Um, some of the like classic, you know, Disney animated films. Um, ironically, a lot of the classics are the most problematic. But um, then you get the Hercules, which really knocks the soundtrack out of the park. I mean, between the sort of like the gospel themed muses to I mean, no shit. <laughs> you know, and then you got you, you got Go the Distance, which is like just a you know you know it's just like a, a I don't know like a joyful tearjerker. Um, so that that's your, that's, already. that's your upper echelon, and then and then you get down to, you know, like the classics like uh, Lion King and Little Mermaid, and and those are like hit or miss. Like you got, you know, good songs amidst kind of bad ones and catchy ones and, and stuff like that. So, anyway. this is how our conversations go, y'all. Like we literally just said all good, which led to no worries, which led to a discussion of Disney soundtracks. I love it. Anywho. <laughs> where the question was going tommy how are you i said i said we'd come back to it i'm good i'm fine Uh, um how am i um i am good i'm excited i think i'm really excited because i keep like in my brain i'm just like let's just talk about what we were going to talk about because i feel like it's going to be really good content but like for those who are actually like really interested in how i'm doing um i'm well i feel a little busy right now um yeah so and i think i'm trying to understand if i actually like being busy or this perception of busyness if i want to set some things down um or like i'm just sort of challenging the narratives that come alongside this this notion or idea of busyness um the things that i'm busying myself with are all like passions like so david and i are working on a conversation that we'll have 
at church in a couple weeks. Um, What's it about? Ooh, queer queerness and love. Love in the time of Corona. I proposed the title. I don't know if we're going to go with this, but Queering Your Faith. So I'm really excited about that. Except, like, <laughs> that's me doing stamp of approval. You can't see anyone except for I can tell me what I'm doing, but I'm I'm stamping like a notary. Like, like you're jerking off something. <laughs> you know? That, I mean, that works. That works. Like, <laughs> now I can't unsee it. No, no. Middle out, y'all. Middle out. So there's your sneak peek for what's coming on the other things that we have opportunities to speak at. So um, at some point I need you to make that motion, but I will not draw attention. Oh, oh, during the, during the, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So (laughs) anywho, (laughs) that's how I'm doing. I'm, 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 I'm really well. Um, I'm excited, uh, but, and I'm excited for this conversation and for this year and for where things are going to go. Um, one of the things, one of the things that I wanted to talk to the audience about was David, <laughs> why haven't we seen much of you lately? Great question. Um, the sh- there's not a short answer. The, 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 <laughs> the complete answer is twofold. One, um, going into 2020, I was feeling, uh, overwhelmed with my commitments and and Becca and I um when we launched the podcast had had just been really really you know like pedal to the floor with interviews and conversations and it was awesome and I was excited about that um but was feeling a little burnt out and so that then pedal went through the floor <laughs> yeah that was part of it uh but the other part of it was um um you know, there was a thoughtful decision kind of collectively made to really hone in the focus of permission to be on, um, you know, the larger project and narrative around anti-racism and dismantling whiteness, um, kind of decolonization and and, and the like. And uh, for a couple reasons, I thought it would be simplest, especially in, you know, in light of me kind of feeling a little burnt out and overwhelmed to take a very much in the background position for that conversation, give um, more space, not only for my co-hosts, um, Tommy and Becca, uh, but um, also and especially um, the wonderful guests that they were able to um, talk to and learn from and secure uh, in the 2020 season. And so um, you'll probably see more of me this season. Um I probably won't be, I probably won't ever be back as frequently as I was during um, kind of that early run before we brought Tommy on. Um, Season one. Yeah. yeah, Largely one, just, you know, kind of work-life balance sort of things. Two, there's three co-hosts now. And so wanting to, um, you know, wanting to kind of balance kind of how many voices are going at the same time, especially when we're interviewing, you know, uh, one or more people. Um, and, and, and just kind of being sensitive topically as to, you know, you know, what spaces is my voice gonna be most valuable, least distracting, least, um, I don't know, domineering or anything like that. Um, but always, um, not all, I shouldn't say always, cause it hasn't, wasn't really always the case last year, but more so I think than last season, um, even on the episodes I'm not a part of. 
uh, will hopefully, you know, kind of continue to be very much involved with Tommy and Becca um, behind the scenes as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So it, I like, it was interesting because uh, like I struggled between the desire to like, we didn't name these things, right. We just sort of kept chugging along in the podcast and like, I was like, Oh, well we never really explained where David went or how David was doing or any of those things. And, and at the same time, it's like one of the things that I feel like we are that we focused on last year was the leadership of black people and centering their voices in that leadership um which put us also it, it gave us clarity in a direction of how we wanted to do the podcast but also it put us in relationship with some really amazing people so yeah you know, like now Becca and I are on the board of Speaking of Racism and um, we're doing collaborative work in that vein um, as well. And so, you know, uh, David, uh, we got to meet Letty a couple months ago in person and that was just phenomenal. And, and so, um, and so it, even even the conversation circled around of like do, do we keep david on as as co-hosts um and one of the things that you know i think instead of being more reductive i think it's really valuable to have people who um think differently who operate differently who see the world differently have has different experiences and i think that david one you being a five on the enneagram and also being a in a pastor um, in the theological space you bring a perspective that becca and i don't necessarily have um and one of the things that you know that i get to work with you when we're in a watershed capacity is what does it look like to have diversity inclusion and equity in theological in church spaces and so um, i'm looking forward to this year merging more anti-racism and theology those those concepts and principles together and so we'll dig a little bit more into what that looks like and means and how that intersects and is adjacent to the work of anti-racism which mm -hmm. we really focus in on the podcast but also um in a way that maybe might be that maybe white people or white men specifically could hear and think through as they're deconstructing their whiteness not as a way to coddle obviously um but i think that sometimes there needs to be multiple voices um sharing knowledge in, for some for some people to hear things a certain way or to hear it in multiple different ways and so but that's one of my takes on it no that's a good way of putting it i think um because because i think just to be clear and, and you two know this and, and just, i just want to make it explicit for anyone listening is it's not that as as a pastor, and certainly not as a white male pastor, I am somehow uniquely qualified to do theology, so to speak. I mean, the two of you do theology constantly in every episode. I mean, that 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 that, that informs your perspective, um, you know, in conjunction with your identities and your experiences and things like that. I think, Tommy, what I heard you getting at, and correct me if I'm wrong, is there may be, there there probably is value 
for someone to be able to see or hear, I guess in this case, the perspective of um, what does it look like for a for a white straight dude, a white straight pastor, nonetheless, to navigate kind of theology from my perspective while trying to um, while trying to make it more equitable and and um, egalitarian and liberating and, 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 and decolonizing many of the sort of the taken for granted assumptions um, that kind of come with, you know, Western white kind of um, often imperialistic, not always, but at least in my case, evangelical theology and things like that. Mm-hmm. So being able to explore some of that in real time and kind of seeing how seeing how I maybe navigate those issues in relation to the two of you specifically and, you know, and, and, and many of the, many of the convictions and values of this podcast more broadly, um, hope we, we hope could be helpful for people. Yeah. Any thoughts, Becca, on that? that you're... No, no thoughts. <clears throat> Not, no thoughts at all. No. <laughs> um, <laughs> as we've had some of these conversations, I know, For me, this is an area, um, theologically speaking, an area of growth um, because I have been brought up in the church 24-7, but I don't have the background that David does. And it's not just the background. One of David's many, many, I don't want to call it a talent or a gift. I don't like those words. But what I'm thinking of is David, you're very knowledgeable and you're able to take in and process information and really have a grasp on it. And one of the challenges that I'm challenging myself and um, of course, Tommy's always challenging me too. Um, And Tommy's actually, actually, this is something I picked up from Tommy in the last six months, not just in regards to learn uh, theology, but Um, I have a tendency as a person, as a, excuse me, as a white woman brought up in the church to sit back and listen instead of be curious. And I've worked through a lot of that um, through counseling and um, those who know me would say, don't shut up. Um, But when it comes to this perception of white men in from a theological perception, even though y'all David's not this at all, I just second nature, sit back and listen. And so one of the things um, I am looking forward to this season in conversations with not only Tommy, but with David as well, um, David is um, me pushing into being bold and asking questions when I don't understand. And um, my white perfectionism tells me that I just, I don't do that because I'm afraid of making a mistake. And I want to model that um, learning experience, um, not perfectly just um, growing in that. Yeah. What I love about this particular conversation we're having right now is I think even with us being here, we're modeling the journey and it's not perfect. I'm sure you know, we, we could, you know, have a, a, a scholar in anti-racism or, you know, listen to this and critique a lot of things in which or ways that we can improve on. And I, I, one, we're open 
to that, but also <laughs> really what we're trying to function as is less, perf- less not perfection, but an encouragement of it's okay to make mistakes and it's okay to go on the journey. It's okay not to know. Um, and it's okay to be flexible in that journey. Um, what is not okay is to not begin the journey or to excuse yourself uh, from the journey or from its difficulties. And, and so I'm really, I'm really grateful for you. And so one of the things that we've been talking about is having the constant presence of um, a black woman on the podcast as to what that might look like. And um, alongside that, whenever we have those conversations, there's also conversations about consistency and what does it look like to offer compensation for that time and that energy Mm -hmm. um especially since this is something that like up to now we we still do without cost and we we haven't compensated our guests and i think there's a desire to move in that direction to to practice what we preach as well in in the space of, of equity um and and not just to say that it's all about compensation right there's other ways to be equitable with your resources, um, but you know, one of the profound ways in which we can see that happening in in a capitalist society right now is people actually need direct cash and, and payment, yeah. which brings up this notion or or, or, or this thought about uh, when are we going to get that extra fourteen hundred dollars? <laughs> <laughs> As Jesse and I were uh, <clears throat> driving back from, we uh, took the weekend away for my birthday um, to a yurt. Um, we were glamping. I'm not your bare bones camping girl. I'm your glamping girl. And on the way home um, from that experience, we were talking about when are we going to get the 14 or if we could get the $1,400 or when would it happen or what we would do with it. And uh, tell you what, in COVID times, that sounds pretty nice. Yeah. Yeah. It's always nice when, you know, I think one of the things that anti-racism has led me to think about is how do we collectively and collaboratively come around to support, uh, ourselves because there's all you know we we can't separate the effects of racism from capitalism and we can't um uh, uh, or when we think about creating equitable solutions like there has to be this whole paradigm shift um of how we think through and and do things and what does it look like to be in communities and collectives um in which those resources are being distributed to those that need them or where there's that freedom to ask for something if you need, if you have a need um, and where people who have privilege or means or access can rally around. And so those are things that I feel like we're actively trying to live out on a daily basis, Um, even still while being under a capitalist rule uh, and how our laws and systems are organized, which brings up this point though often that you know we i think we often segregate or separate 
these notions, we like to talk about theology in, in church and keep it about theology in church, or we like to talk about racism and keep it about racism and anti-racism. Um, and we don't necessarily like to look at the intersections. And in preparation for some of our conversations, one of the things that often comes up and that David has often said is that um, especially when we're talking about politics and being in, the, in a, a pastor in a church, oftentimes people will be like, I don't come to church to talk politics. And to that, David and I in conversation, and Becca, you as well, have often said, well, everything is political. And one of the things that I want to talk about today is what the heck does that even mean when we say that everything is political? Like, where does that even come from? What basis? How would you even begin to educate or attempt to transform someone's thought process or mind on how they frame their politics. All right, friends, if this podcast is too long for you, this is your part two marker. Because when we come back, we're going to continue our discussion on everything is political. All right. See you in a few seconds. So, where to start? And and and, and hopefully this is understood, but I just want to say it explicitly. Like my well, answer, question, my answer <laughs> to question is not is not the end all be all. But so this is this would be my answer to that question. Um, one, I think I think it's important to like define what, what we mean by political, and and I think what is typically meant is. Um, you know, when people want to say that they keep church out of, you know, politics out of church and, and, and whatnot. Um, one, I think it, it's it's sort of an uncritical, unself-examined cop-out uh, to avoid mm-hmm. taking any kind of moral responsibility for their political positions. But beyond that, I think, you know, when we're saying, that when, even when I'm saying like political positions, it, it, it saying everything is politics names the fact that we, we live in a society. Like, you can't you can't abstract extrapolate um, in some sort of abstract way individual ethical positions from the way that they affect other people, and so there's it, there, there's no there's no ethics, and by ethics I simply mean like individual morality without a politics, like it, they're in they're they're inextricably bound. So any individual ethical decision you think that you are making in isolation of other people, you're not, it, it affects other people. And, and so, um, so simply put, like, before we even get into partisan politics, you know, Republicans and Democrats, left and right, um, before we're even trying to define terms like left and right, like a simple, like, baseline acknowledgement that like, our decisions affect other people, even when we don't intend them to, that's like the baseline level of what I mean when I say everything is political in the sense that like we can't separate ourselves from the cause and effect that our ethical decisions make at a more communal, relational, societal level. Hmm. So, yeah. I just, so I, 
I see that and I hear that. And maybe I'm jumping ahead a little bit too much on this. But some of my personal frustration has been comments that it, that it, you know, Jesus wasn't political. Pastors don't want to be political in the churches because they want to be there for everybody and not divide um, congregants or um, turn air quotes, turn people off um, by having political conversations. And where, where's that line, which I don't personally believe there is one, but where's that line? If, if it's your ethics, it's also your politics. And yet we're saying I'm not drawing a line. So in a sense, it's a lie. So before we, like when, when we say politics, are we saying that politics are simply the way that we as humans organize ourselves um, in what we consent to give power to? Sort of. I think maybe an example would help. Um, yes. So, yes. so think about, let's use like an extreme example. Let's, th- let's think about Hitler and Nazi Germany, World War II era. So what we've done historically, and this was intentional, like what we've done is we have abstracted Hitler and the Nazis away from a political position because Nazism was a was and is a political position, mm-hmm. um, not just in this in the in the very base sense that I described a moment ago, as far as like this decision that I make affects other people, but but even even as we get into like concrete ideology around the way that we organize and govern our society, Nazism is not first and foremost, at least, an abstract, amorphous, supernatural evil. It's a political position. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And it's, it's a political position that is consistent with what has historically been understood as right-wing ideology. And Hitler, in many ways, was a masterful, um, was a masterful implementer or a masterful advocate for this particular political position. In the time since Hitler, as the horrors of the Holocaust, as, you know, as the, as the weight and loss globally of world war ii began to sink in and kind of um you know just be you know grappled with um you know by the world it became really easy to succumb to the temptation to then like i said a moment ago abstract or detach hitler and nazism from a uh, from from being a concrete political position to just kind of being this almost like supernatural transcendent evil um and that sort of makes sense because it helps our it helps our our psyches sort of wrap our head around what seems to be unspeakable, what seems to be so um, so horrific that it it it, it's, it has to it has to transcend or it has to um, it has to somehow um, cross over you know an imagined boundary around what constitutes a political position. Um, but, you know, as many historians would tell you, like, you know, most of Germany just kind of went along with it. 
and some of them were aware of what was going on a lot of them weren't but but they were buying into a political position they were buying into a set of um, ideals uh, to a certain narrative around the way that society should be structured and governed that seemed very reasonable to them and so my argument in this moment is sort of that this abstraction taking a concrete political position and turning it into more of this abstract you know supernatural even force of evil allows people today who hold concrete political positions that are very very similar to what led to Hitler and Ger Nazi Germany and the Holocaust to create a distance between themselves and, and, and act offended if they're accused of holding a similar position because we don't think of Nazism as a as a political position anymore we think of it as this like horrific satanic demonic evil yeah. that somehow transcends that and where the at least my history faith-wise in the evangelical church come in what what, what, the, what the evangelical church has masterfully done is is um use that same logic to espouse a position that they hold that they are that, that they are also apolitical which frees them to support um which frees them to support um, actual political parties and positions that are very much in step with, you know, some of these horrific historical ideologies, while at the same time sort of pat themselves on the back that they are existing to, like, resist evil in the world. Because evil can't be at the level of the political. It has to be this, it has to be this bigger, satanic, kind of demonic thing. So it's a, it's, it's, it's a very clever brilliance perhaps even um, sounds like delusion sure sure <laughs> it's it's but it's it's um it's sticky it's hard to extricate yourself um from kind of seeing the world this way and i i don't know i don't want to be hyperbolic but on some level our failure i think to make this distinction makes it really really hard to practice um, many of the things that you know that a podcast like this and, and, and many of the guests that you know we've had on in the history of this podcast, but especially in the last year as it concerns things like equity and anti-racism and liberation and things like that, um, it becomes really, really hard to imagine these positions outside of the level of like individual conviction or um, you know like individual choice and decision because of the way that we kind of think about our society politically or or, or, or apolitically um, in this case. So what I hear in that and what I hear you saying in that is when we divorce things like racism or fascism um, from how it's operating in politics um we create this narrative that these things can be fixed on some individual level via mm. some individual work is that what i'm hearing practically i think that's a big part of it in, in, you know you know let's use um let's use anti-racism as, as, as the potentially low-hanging fruit. Not in the low-hanging as far as solving it goes, but low-hanging as in, like, very visible, I think, right now in, in our society, or at least in our kind of 
kind of progressive spiritual world. And I don't want to, super clear up front, I don't want to say that the individual work is not important. You know, people have, people have prejudices, people have unconscious biases, people have, um, people have deep seated hatred. I mean, all of that's real, you know, kind of the stereotypical kind of surface level understanding of, of racism is a very real thing. Often that, uh, often that people racialized as white are ignorant to, um, because of the privilege of their experience. But on top of that, or maybe below it, you know, depending on what sort of like spatial metaphor you want to want to use, are material and political realities that kind of exist in this feedback loop, you know. And so it's, you know, um, friend of us and, and, you know, friend of the podcast, you know, co-host of Token Confessions, Cedric Lundy, he talks about this all the time, this idea that, that historically speaking, like racism preceded like the notion of race. You know, and, 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 and race exists as kind of this justifying narrative, this, this kind of moving target to justify racism, which first and foremost, even, be, even before it creates race to, um, to invent a series of individual and personal prejudices as a means of justifying the exploitation of racism, it starts out as, 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 it starts out as racism, which manifests as political policies, um, material exploitation of certain people groups in order, you know, for economic gain and for subjugation and things like that. And so um, it's, it's very much, I'm, what I'm advocating for is a both and is, is, is seeing in tandem with the kind of prejudices and individual biases and whatnot that are often thought of under the term racism is seeing what they are obscuring seeing what those or, 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 or what they are justifying um, the sentiments that they're uh, that not just the sentiments that they're justifying, but the policies, the laws, the histories, the narratives, the, um, the disparities, the exploitations. Um, all of those are, th- those are political terms. Those are political realities that are propped up and obscured by, um, by what we normally think of as like ethical or individual evils so when when we're transitioning that over to our theologies and you know without without me having read something that explicitly talks about this how do we get to this place or how do you in your observations in your studies um how do we get to this place um of today where the church wants to keep politics um, and their theological ethics separated Um, because I don't, I don't see any way in which they can, right? Because when I think of, you know, I want to have a conversation on sex. Well, theologically there's something that, 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 that we can rest our hats on perhaps, or, or create some ethic around and, we know that there's laws and there's ways that we ar- arrange ourselves in relation to government principles, uh, powers and principalities, right? So we could, sex is just one example or sexuality for that nature. Um, when it comes down to race, right? People, th- we could look at scripture and say, well, make the argument that there's a theological ethic that would provide for the subjugation of people while it also provides for this equalizing of people and then that seems to you know historically we see that 
play in the policies that we create, right? And so it it seems quite hypocritical to try to separate the two, especially when the church has often aligned itself with power to seemingly protect itself or its interests. I would even argue that the church has always aligned itself. It's, but let me rephrase that. Let me rephrase that. My thought, I would argue that the American church has always aligned itself. I would, I would push you on that and say, if you think about the Council of Nicaea and Catholicism and Orthodox, like even going back down to those things, like Christianity wasn't super popular until Rome made it like the nation's like religion, right? So even yeah, that's true. Sure. Uh, before yeah. then, right? So post Constantine, at least there's been at least some sort of some sort of structural alignment with the Christian church and political power, um, broadly speaking. And, and I don't know. So, so for me, the first thing that comes to mind with the examples that you two bring up is, is even the word, um, the word Christianity or the word church, because, mm. um, um, uh, do I want to go this direction? I'm impressed that you can like pick the direction you want to go right now. <laughs> so, so I think there's often a notion, and I think I think progressive Christians, those who self-identify as maybe post or ex-evangelical, or or just or just want to maintain the label Christian on some sort of identitarian level, but but see themselves as more just and generous, progressive, inclusive. You know, whether that means you know actively working towards anti-racism or decolonizing their theology or or being fully inclusive and affirming of LGBTQ plus persons. Um, anyone who falls under that umbrella, which I think on some level to varying degrees includes the three of us, can also succumb to this temptation of of kind of positing or imagining a sort of pure Christianity. So you have you have like the way of Jesus, you have, um, you know, you have what he in, maybe instilled in his followers and disciples. And then almost from the beginning, and there'll be disputes about where the corruption entered. Was it Paul? I have many good friends who think that, you know, like Jesus is great. Paul, we're a little iffy on Paul and it kind of just goes downhill from there. Um, you know, others, others would, would, you know, put the break at Constantine, which we referenced a moment ago, like, ah, the early kind of patristic period, the first couple hundred years was good, but as soon as empire got a hold of it, you know, everything kind of, you know, kind of shit the bed, um, you know, and, 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 you know, maybe kind of shades of gray in between. But what I think the first thing that I would suggest kind of in response to that is there has only always ever been Christianities, a plural. Um, mm. and, and, and even then, you know, even then, you know, we got to be careful about our anti-Semitism and our supersessionism here in that Christianity yeah. of itself, or what we now refer to retroactively or retrospectively as Christianity, all it was from the beginning was just an, you know, kind of an internal dialogue. I don't even, I even want to be cautious around the word dispute, but an internal dialogue within Judaism. And how does Judaism incorporate non-ethnic and religious Jews into what was at least for Jesus and for Paul historically a very Jewish hope um, in in an age to come, you know, and you know, without getting into you know the notion of Jewish apocalypticism and well, that's a different podcast. But point being is from the beginning this was a give and a take and a dialogue, and I and I would argue you can even see that as early as the New Testament itself. You know, in, in contrast to being raised in sort of an inerrancy affirming evangelical. Um, 
ideology that saw the Bible as always completely harmonious with itself, like it couldn't contradict itself in any way. Yeah. Yeah. I, I much more so I would advocate for seeing the Bible from the beginning. And this is this I would argue this is a um and I say this as a I say this cautiously as a non-expert um in this area, but um a very Jewish document in the way that it was in the way that it was um pushing back against itself internally and, and very much engaged in this internal dialogue over the first you know, a couple hundred years of, of this post-Christ period, this post-event of Jesus Christ and his life and ministry and death and resurrection, whatever you mean by that. Um, and so, you know, and so you already see, and this is even kind of clearly documented. Um, it's not, you, don't, you don't even have to like read between the lines to see this. You already see give and take between Peter and Paul or Paul and James and, um, and, and, and many of these early historical figures who were related to this Jesus movement. And so from the beginning, there has never been, there's never been a pure, unadulterated Christianity, um, nor has there ever, you know, um, nor has, I, I would argue, even, even before like the Protestant Reformation, has there ever been like a complete consensus on what counts as Christian, um, especially as it pertains to certain core doctrines like, you know, for all the councils and for all the creeds, there's never been an exclusive doctrine of salvation or atonement, for example. There's always just been a kaleidoscope of theories. Um, just kind of. Well, that's what I, I find Christ, Christianity is more about theory and concept than, you know, that. Uh, I, I don't know if I said this, but Jeremiah Wright I was listening to a lecture uh, by him a few days ago, a few weeks ago now, and he was talking about how he defined what Christianity was or who Jesus or who God was. And he refers back to a scripture in which I think it was Jesus said, who do you say that I am? Mm -hmm. Um, And it's, it feels even in scriptures, we have this invitation into that wrestling um, to understand our spirituality relationally to our lived experiences in the context of our lives and, and the powers and principalities that we find ourselves under. So I, I really like this whole direction of this, the pure Christianity and growing up evangelical. It was never said that way, but there is a feeling, a feeling of that you're, denomination your reading of the bible your translation of the bible is as pure as it can get whatever you know whatever um church you've been brought up in i've met you know then of course that's where we get denominations and people breaking off and all of that but i'm really curious to link that belief of being pure and supremacy culture and politics, all how they wrap together. So a great resource for anyone kind of taking notes and wanting to do some further reading um, would be a book by a guy named Tad DeLay. So T-A-D-D-E-L-A-Y, Tad DeLay. And the book is called Against What Does the White Evangelical Want? And 
it's short, it's dense, but it's short. And if you're not so much of a reader, um, Dr. DeLay actually has a podcast where he, it's not a word for word reading of each chapter, but it's, it's pretty close, but they're about 15 minute chunks. I think it's 10 episodes of 15 minutes each. So pretty easy, you know, fits into any commute for the most part where he kind of goes through each chapter. But in summary, kind of the big idea is historically, he looks kind of through a little bit pre 20th century, but especially in the 20th century. And he kind of examines how um, kind of conservative evangelicalism, sort of like a libertarian approach to economics, capitalism, you know, and, and business and white supremacy found common cause. And, and both consciously, but even on some level unconsciously on the part of many of the, you know, many of the leaders, some of which very much had a foot in both camps, um, you know, you know, kind of in the, you know, in the post Jim Crow era through the civil rights movement and then into, you know, what, you know, we're calling, you know, the late 20th century, late capitalism kind of rise of neoliberalism with Reagan and Thatcher and whatnot. Uh, you begin to kind of see this alliance between kind of these three concurrent streams, you know, so sort of like a libertarian economic ethic, um, very Ayn, um, Ayn Rand, if you're familiar with Ayn Rand. Um, so the, there's that, which ironically is very secular. You know, Rand was an atheist. Um, so, so this very kind of secular, borderline atheistic um, ideology around, you know, the economy with um, with white supremacy very much trying to find its find its political foothold um, post civil rights movement, um, you know, and some of the subsequent laws and policies and, and, and advances that happened during that era, and then kind of a conservative um, a conservative Christianity fundamentalism evangelicalism that that that. Um, th- honestly, that's that 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 had been struggling since sort of the Enlightenment era a couple hundred years prior with the rise of science and secularism and, mm-hmm. and um, you know, sort of an undermining of biblical or, um, or church, you know, in the Catholic sense, kind of more magisterial authority. And so kind of a perfect storm where these kind of three groups broadly defined, you know, began finding themselves to be political allies. And, 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 you know, kind of this is the rise of the religious right. But, but even though that has taken on different forms over the last 30 to 40 years, kind of leading up to our present moment, it's not hard really to sort of trace a through line um, from then to now in the sort of, you know, apocalyptic um, religious fervor that we see around conspiracies, you know, QAnon and things like that. And mm-hmm. one thing that delay does really nicely, and this kind of goes back to what you said, Becca, is it you know, in, the, in, in, in kind of what stuck with you when it comes to this, this, this notion of a pure Christianity is this idea of chosenness, mm-hmm. uh, which is very much appropriated from um, the promises and narratives around the nation of Israel uh, and this, you know, the, kind of the, 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 both the religious and kind of literal historical history of the Jewish people, you know, in, mm-hmm. in the Jewish Bible, the Old Testament, you know, you know, and then, and then you know, as it spills into the new. Um, so all of this kind of morphs together to get, and, and, and delay does is much more thorough in kind of unpacking, you know, getting from point A to point B, but to kind of get to where we are now. Mm-hmm. So interesting that I love that you bring it back around to today and to sort of why 
we're having this conversation because for me, it's, I've always grew up in the expression, um, well, two expressions. One, growing up Jehovah's Witness, everything was kept very separate. You were like to be no part of the world, partake in poli- not partake in politics at all, but also being adjacent to the Black church experience where sort of the rule of thumb is newspaper in one hand, Bible in the other, right? And, um, and because we need... Wait a minute, to- wait a minute. Newspaper in one hand and Bible in the other. Oh, yeah, I just want right. to put a... I don't put a pin in it. Come back to that when you're finished with your thought. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, let, we can go there now because I was gonna. I was gonna just the thought where I'm going with that is sort of this introduction of how everything is political and this notion or thought of a return to normalcy intersect with each other. Mm-hmm. But. What were you saying about, what did you, yeah. So you said the black, and please correct me if I'm misquoting you, but you said the black church, you know, newspaper in one hand and a Bible in the other. Mm-hmm. For me, growing up in the evangelical church, that, and who I am now is refreshing um, to hear some, you know, learning what's going on and in the world and having the Bible in the other, whereas in the pure church, you're just learning from the Bible and who's ever leading you up front. You have, in some ways you, you, you you're taught to perceive the world as you are not of it. And so you're not a part of what's happening, even though you are. Yeah. I just don't see how that's like biblically in alignment because even the prophets of old, the prophets took things that could be said to be political in nature and critiqued the uh, or, or the followers of God. I don't know the Israelites or whatever um, amongst those things. And so it, it like it, sort of the prophets of old as they're prophesying sort of had the current events in, in one hand, so to speak, and God's commandments in the other hand and how those things were intersecting or not compatible with each other, and they're developing these pronouncements um, from that space of how people are actually living their lives. But when I think about that in relationship to the Black church, and I think you need to understand, one, how the Black church even came to be first um, as a response to, um, as a a place for liberation, as a, a place for freedom, to um, experience something greater, something more spiritual from apart from the white gaze, um, right? And, and so I think one, having that foundation and recognizing that the black church was built on this notion of liberation tied to the story of Jesus who died upon a tree, James Cone and the lynching tree. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, it's interesting to me when I hear predominantly white church spaces come with this notion of, oh, I don't come to church to be political because I've always grown up with an awareness that these things are intertwined or connected, or you're just completely removed off in some fantasy land, i.e. 
as I was living my life as a Jehovah's Witness. And so, yeah. The thought that's coming through my brain right now is that white church doesn't have the news in their hand. And so they're also not daily. Of course they do. They have Fox News in their hand. (laughs) So, my God, dear Jesus, that's true. Can I get an amen? So, but... But what I was thinking, I've, so in my head, I'm thinking like back in the 20s and 40s and 50s and is they don't have it in their hand. And they also gives them freedom to not acknowledge their behavior and what is happening out in the world. So, it is their privilege not to have to live with the realities of the world. So, so it's a great it's a great kind of segue to kind of tie it all together so it's interesting tommy that even that even you you you, you juxtapose the notion of, of of newspaper in one hand and, and, and bible in the other um i don't want to reduce this quote to, to this person that i'm going to i'm going to say said something similar to that but um but the swiss theologian uh carl bart um who, who who very famous prolific um you know european theologian of the 20th century um who was you know, kind of at the height of his prominence during World War II, um, a, a quote very similar to that is attributed to him. You, you know that a pastor must, uh, you know, a pastor must pre- must preach with the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other. And I could be wrong on this, um, but I, I believe that quote originated when he was actually pastoring a congregation in um, in Switzerland, kind of in the lead up to World War II, where. The quote was in response to criticism he was getting for how political he was being in his messages, particularly as it relates to poverty and economics. He was he was speaking out against factory owners within his congregation because of the way that they were exploiting workers who were also in his congregation, um, which ultimately led all the factory workers to leave and go to a different church that was going to be kinder and less harsh to the to you know you know to the way that they were exploiting exploiting the poor and working class among them, and so sort of fast, you know, sort of fast forward or, or kind of put a pin in that and hop over, you know, to, to the American context. Um, and in many ways, it's very much the same thing. And, and, and I think kind of at the root of it, uh, which you, you alluded to is this notion that um, sort of the mental gymnastics are kind of ninja move that the white church uh, or the evangelical church more specifically, but I don't want to reduce it to that because, because you know, mainliners and Catholics, you do this too, but, um, but maybe, <laughs> We're maybe, not maybe that's still the white church, right? <laughs> yeah. so the white church in general, what it does is sort of takes this notion that there is there. And again, it goes back to this idea of purity or election or, um, or chosenness kind of like there's this, there's this culturally or contextually transcendent truth or theology or access to God and everything else is contextual, which is why, you know, which is why now, even even amongst more progressive or inclusive or justice affirming uh, persons, you have, you know, you have black theology and womanist theology and queer theology. Um, but but what what typically is, you know, kind of from the European tradition is just theology, you know, without any of the contextual identifiers and disclaimers. And that is that is, I think, my theology. Right? No, no. I think that's hundred uh, percent. That would be like an important discipline to parse out, in the sense that, um, in the sense that, like, it, it, the move being made there is the same move of, of of kind of whiteness or white supremacy in general. Is is this? It's this subtle, but paradoxically also explicit 
move to make normative or even like divinely or naturally ordained a certain hierarchy or way of being in the world that privileges certain positions, certain in-groups, certain identities, and so on and so forth. Um, and, it, and it just sort of like takes for granted that somehow this is like a divine, a divine ordering of things. And, and um, it's almost made possible because of this weird inversion where, um, where a, a faith system or a, or, a, or a belief system that was always, you know, going back to the Jewish history and the Jewish scriptures, born from the margins of society, born from the margins of power, and those forsaken by the political and cultural powers of the world, born from those, finds itself in league with power, and then needs to almost manufacture a kind of, um, needs to kind of manufacture a kind of oppression or persecution upon, it, upon itself, imagine it, to sort of justify its, justify its, its, its violent ordering of the world. Um, yeah. And I just want to draw a, a connection point to that, to colonization and mm. the ties of, you know, Puritans and religious freedom as a way or being a chosen people as yeah. a way to commit genocide against indigenous individuals and, and enslaved people. And so even as we think about our founding as the United States of America and in our context, our theology has always been perverted and aligned mm -hmm. with, and in our context, and, and if you are a U.S. American and a, a Christian, there are privileges that come with that. Granted, we can get into the... the nuances of that when we start to talk about race and, and slavery in that but i think as an anyone in america today we have to wrestle with the fact that life comes with privileges um or, or our life here in, as u.s american citizens comes with privileges in relationship to other marginalized groups around the world even though we have our own points of oppression in the U.S., uh, the United States of America, and so it—it's just so fascinating that these themes seem to keep repeating themselves, um, and it—it, it, which brings us us back to this point here of everything being political and these cries for normalcy just feel and seem rooted in this notion of of purity and this notion of. Um, ease and being a chosen people which ties back to colonization and white supremacy <laughs> it's interesting and there's lots of things that are interesting there's a long pause when I was trying to think about where this longing for purity comes from I mean there's lots of nuances to it and one of them that I think about right now, as a child, I would imagine what it would look like if Eve hadn't have sinned in the Garden of Eden. And I would think about how, in my mind, that 
would have made everything okay. Um, and I wonder if that's some of the longing um, that we seek. But when, as a child, when I would think about if that made everything okay, Eve was white, Adam was white, I am white, and that making everything okay was completely centered around being white and that the white people being okay and no thought of anyone else. And I think that's the white people's privilege, their hope in this privileged world that they feel that they've been forsaken that garden of Eden that right now I don't know that I even believe they exist. I mean, well, even, even then, if you're claiming that, then you, the natural response though is, but you want to destroy the earth and deny climate change. Make it make sense. Make it make sense. But, 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 but if I'm saved, air quotes, then I get all those things back when it's all gone. Interesting. So. I know. Isn't it, I would just say all that to say we have an exciting season three in store for us in the days ahead. Um, let's end today on reflections of the last few weeks. Um, I told you I would circle back around, Becca. You said that you were relieved but not so much. Um, what are you seeing, observing, experiencing? Um, and maybe tie that back into some of the conversation that we've had today. Mm. And I don't know, let me frame it this way. I don't, I am seeing people there's a sense of, okay, going back towards normalcy. All right. For a lot of people and probably for most of our listeners, if not 90% of them, um, the inauguration day was one step closer to normal. And then all of the executive orders that were signed on that day and the days following were also steps back closer to normal. And now if we can just get the COVID vaccine under control or the vaccine distributed and COVID under control, things will be to normal. And I don't see that. I think that is a privileged position and it's a false hope. It's horrible and mentally and physically draining as the last four plus years have been, they have also peeled back the reality of who our nation has always been. And that is overwhelming 
to me selfishly as a white person, but it also shows me how much work I have to do and how much work needs to be done and that hasn't been done. And it continues to show me more of what America's true history is, which leads back to the church for me, um, the reality of who the church is, the reality of we don't want to take sides, but yet we're not standing up for the marginalized communities. We're not speaking out because we're worried about our big donors and what they might think. Hmm. Thank you. What about you, David? I mean, kind of piggybacking off what Becca said. I mean, I think, I think what the last four years did is kind of just say the quiet parts out loud. Um, in that, and, and I want to make a clear distinction here. I don't want to downplay or discount the fact that the Biden administration will enact policies that are significantly more equitable and liberating relative to people who are marginalized on the basis of race, gender, sexuality, socioeconomic status, and whatnot. Like, that's all real. Um, and on top of that, there is a sort of psychic relief from, honestly, it's probably even more so than, than Trump being out of the presidency. It's probably Trump being off Twitter and social media, um, where, you know, where that piece comes in. Yes. But, but then on top of that, I think what Trump did in a helpful way, perhaps, kind of like I was alluding to this, is... Um, is make it impossible to deny the reality that everything is political. So for e even for people who, e even self-described liberals or progressives who, who see themselves on the side of history or justice or inclusion, um, it was very easy, or easier at least pre-Trump, to imagine yourself to be apolitical. Yeah, you probably voted blue most of the time, but you still saw yourself in an ethical battle of good versus evil. Mm -hmm. um, politics is exhausting. It's mentally mm -hmm. exhausting, physically exhausting. Organizing people is hard. It's rife with contradiction. Um, you know, our desires for pureness and wholeness um, almost immediately have to be thrown out the window and discarded as we're trying to create coalitions of people that have overlapping, but at the same time, often individual conflicting interests um, and experiences, and cultures, and identities, and preferences, and fears, and insecurities, and traumas. Mm -hmm. um, and what the Trump years did is it, it, it made that explicit. Um, it made it explicit in, in, in really politically dehumanizing ways. And so I want to affirm the people who are experiencing both literal, material, but also emotional and psychic relief at that being over for the time being. And yet, in step with what Becca's saying, um, we're also running the risk in sort of the temptation to allow things to return to normal, to forget the all-encompassing political nature of our shared reality. And uh, as exhausting as it is, um, I think we need to keep that front and center. Um, and what that might look like practically is, you know, holding intention, the celebration of the fact that, you know, in the short term, 
Biden, uh, President Biden has, has, you know, installed or is in the process of installing the most diverse and inclusive administration and cabinet in U.S. history. And yet at the same time, as much as that is historic and, and worthy of affirmation and celebration, um, inevitably, it's still going to be a, an administration that upholds and enacts and implements um, many policies that are degrading and dehumanizing to a lot of people. And and that's an exhausting thing to hold in tension. Um, but I think to some degree, that's the, uh, you know, that's the mandate of trying to maintain an emancipatory or liberationist politics. I'm going to invoke my um, dear friend, Austin Channing Brown's words of white people are exhausting. And just sitting here thinking about you two as white people, it, it, what it feels like is you're able to now have, or you've now experienced a taste of what that sentiment means and and implies um, in how we organize and order our society. So I would say piggybacking off of you, both of you is I see and observe all of those things. And because of the exhaustion, I also see a lot of um, people white people tiring out of the work um which is concerning and i'm also you know it's concerning when i think about whiteness and how whiteness operates at the same time i hold intention our humanity and our need for rest um our need for restoration and rejuvenation um and so I see spaces in which we've created the foundation in the atmosphere for those things to happen, that, that we can be able to process uh, this, this, what we see happening, taking place around us, where we can organize, where we can imagine a better pathway forward. And I'm hopeful that the current administration um, will provide conditions in which those conversations, that rest, that creativity um, can happen to a greater degree and continue to produce thought and policies and ideas that move us forward. Um, at the same time, I'm not naive to recognize that whiteness is insidious as an institution, that... Uh, even people of color and black people in positions of power can uphold uh, white supremacist ideology unintentionally. Um, and so it, while I have this, this thought of, okay, yes, we can breathe a little bit more freely, um, there's also this overwhelming feeling and awareness that all right the work is truly beginning and we're going to sort of see this weeding out or this separation of who are our true allies and co-conspirators in this work toward justice uh, not just as it relates to anti-racism 
but I think you know as we've talked about on the podcast anti-racism isn't just about racism it's about transphobia it's about homophobia it's about sexism um, and how all these things connect and interact with one another or compound upon each other to produce uh, uh, lived experiences of, of more oppression and so yes it's nice that biden is doing nice things um today he signed an executive order rescinding the ban on transgendered individuals in the military right Mm -hmm. so that's a positive thing but then i can't look at that aside from well it's still a thing that props up a militarial industrial complex in which we use our power to go and invade and colonize and produce these systems of violence yes yes um i the 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 policies to infuse cash flow into the economy are still propping up systems of capitalism which capitalism then thrives upon racism and separation so even though we're trying to do infuse this in, in equitable ways we're still not imagining a world as it could be and should be um, apart from the systems that we've already created and so i think that we have unique opportunity if we take advantage of it in our faith spaces and in our spiritual spaces in our spaces where we find this committed togetherness with one another to press into this um, perhaps in a way that we didn't have to do because we were sort of in stop the bleeding damage control mode for the last four years. Mm. Mm. Yeah, that is a really good point. We've been in survival for a while. So the other thing that I'm really interested in in, in this season is to also continue our conversations on uh, sort of this notion of the politics of trauma mm-hmm. and and how that plays also into our being, into um, uh, how, how we go al- along our work being anti-racist and anti-sexist and, and committing to breaking down systems and living differently in a way that's transformative and uh, liberatory for all that we find ourselves in relationship with. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Tommy. Thank you. Any final thoughts, y'all? None that I can say without us getting into a, another <laughs> 15 minutes. Another hour. <laughs> and, and I don't mean that in any sort of like bad pushback way. I mean, as both of you were talking, I'm like, oh yeah, and this, oh, and this, and this, and this. So future episodes. I had similar thoughts. I was like, Okay, this is we're we're ending this. <laughs> I can say something or ask David more questions and ask you more questions, Tommy. So we will continue this conversation and maybe make this a staple of which us three just get and talk and share our hearts and our experiences. Mm-hmm. Or maybe we might create a Patreon and you can subscribe and support so that we can pay our guests for that friend our overhead. <laughs> yeah yeah our, take care of our overhead costs so that we could continue bringing you good content but mm-hmm. also if there's you know uh reply uh leave a comment leave a review or message us on social media uh on our permission to be sites if there's 
theological concepts or content that is going on that you want us to talk about that we might not have touched or that we can dig into yes. um, and and find ways that we can explore that together. And so we're we continue to be grateful for you. We continue to be grateful yes. for the conversations that we have and on this journey of being together with one another. So next time y'all. Yo, that was our show. Thanks for listening to Permission to Be. Um, thank you to our guests. So if you want more information, head on over to permissiontobepodcast.com to check out the show notes. Get some more information on our guests that we post over there. Don't forget to subscribe, leave a review, leave a rating. If there's somebody that you want to see on this podcast telling their story, we also want to hear from you. So make sure to connect with us on Facebook and Instagram, Permission to Be Podcast, and we'll see you soon.